How many of you are aware that college football started this week? Anybody? One of the biggest arguments that I've heard already on Facebook and Twitter and all friends and all this, because I'm a Longhorn fan, is this argument between uh, the, the top-ranked teams starting their season against cupcake teams, that they call. And so you've got Texas and Florida and USC that started playing against teams like Louisiana, Monroe, and Florida International. Oh, no, that's who, that's who Alabama plays next week. That was for Trey. Where's he at? <laughs> Um, you have some of these teams that did that. And then you have the teams like Oklahoma who played a tough ranked team. Then you had Alabama that played Virginia Tech. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it's funny how the criticism now is not whether you win or lost, it's who you played for some reason. But I have a feeling if we were to strip away in six months from now or six weeks from now, we look back at the schedules of all these teams, and if we were to really say, okay, for those of you who are teams who your goal is to win a national championship, in the big picture of things, what is most important? What is most important? I would venture to say the first thing on that would be whether you won or whether you lost that game. Uh, for the last several weeks, we've been studying the book of Acts. And as a church, we've been looking at what is the most significant thing about the church that we need to be about. The last three weeks, we have been looking into the life of Saul, specifically the conversion of Saul in Acts 9, all right? And as we look into his life and we begin to look at personally what is the big picture here, what we are finding is that corporately we have this big picture, but then also individually and personally we have this big picture that we need to find out what is most important. And what we find out about this story is the most important thing we can do as individuals, all right, the most important thing is to think heavily about how we respond to the person of Christ. Individually, personally. The person sitting next to you may be fully committed to Jesus in their life. Okay? And that's great for them. Where are we? Individually and personally. So today, we're going to look at the framework of how we can respond specifically to Christ. Specifically to Christ when we encounter Him. And then how it, it has played out through Paul's life all right, the Apostle Paul, what we can learn from that because it really does create um, a framework. So a quick summary for those of you who, haven't, who have not been here. We spent three weeks. The first one we talked primarily about the, the conversion of Saul. Um, the second week, more about the preparation in this time where Ananias was brought in to deal with Saul. And now we're going to talk a little bit about the going and the mission of Saul. When we first started out, we saw Saul as a... Um, one of the biggest Pharisees and religious dudes of his day, all right? He persecuted Christians. He believed that this way of Christ threatened his way because it, it did. And he literally had asked permission to go to Damascus to take Christians and put them back in prison, if not worse. So he got permission. He was on the way to Damascus. And on the way to Damascus, on the Damascus road, he came face to face with Christ. He was blinded. And Jesus said to him, why do you persecute me? And then in that story, obviously a life-changing experience. We're calling it our Damascus road experiences where he came face to face with Christ. This parallel story was going on as Matthew taught a couple weeks ago of Ananias and God coming to him saying, I'm really messing up Saul's life right now. 
I need you to be a part of this. And he goes, no way, dude, I'm not going. He goes, you're going. And so he came together, all right, and they're beginning to plan, uh, moving forward with what's about to happen in Saul's life. And so we pick up in verse 17 in Acts chapter 9. It says, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I love the evidences that God continues to give these people in this time of his, of, of his presence and his power. If at all Saul was wondering, maybe I just, you know, I was seeing something, this really wasn't, this is one of those weird, maybe it was Haley's comet got in my eye or something. You know, here's another guy going, well, guess what? I know what happened. Here's what's going on. God's saying do this. Now, it was continuously affirming. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. Immediately there was something going on. And after taking some food, he regained uh, his strength. Well, why is this guy's story so significant? I think we need to fast forward a little bit right away, just to, even if you already know this, it's really important that, remem- that we remember. Saul, who was then known as Paul, all right, went from being, in his own words, the chief among sinners, okay, to being the guy God used to start the church on these missionary journeys. Three missionary journeys they have, he started these churches, okay, in Corinth, He started these churches and wrote letters to them where we get the books of the Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and 1 and 2 Corinthians. The letters that he wrote and encouraged these people with were letters that now make up over half of the New Testament. So this is a serious 180 in this guy's life. A significant moment because God was up to really, really big things. Okay, so here's what's going on. I think throughout history we see three things happen. When Jesus pursues a person, three things seem to happen when he pursues someone individually or personally. The first one is is that Jesus is revealed. You might write that down if you have a bulletin, a little outline just to follow along. The first is that he is revealed. And just as Paul came face to face with Christ, I mean literally face to face, there was no doubt. Just as Paul came face to face with Christ, there is a point in when each one of us will be or have been or is being confronted with the person of Jesus. Here we are, in the middle of our junk, and at one point or another, we are being confronted with the truth and the person. Jesus is being revealed to us. And we talked about how how embarrassing would that have been to be the guy on the road to kill Christians, and now Jesus said, hey, what you doing? Uh, nothing. (laughs) But here he is, and he confronted him, and I, and I thought about that, that moment when Jesus is revealed to us that we each have an opportunity to respond. We actually have a responsibility to respond, and whether we choose to respond or not, we do respond. We respond in one of a couple ways that we'll talk about, all right? And, and I believe that Scripture affirms it, and I believe it through experiences that, that he is revealed in many different ways. Some of you maybe have experienced where you're just 
in this time of prayer, looking into God's word or whatever, Christ just shows himself to you. Maybe that's never been you, but you've had someone or people that God has put in your life that every time you're around them, they seem to speak this truth into you that you just don't know where you'd be without that, that person or that friendship. Or I know people who literally have been out on a mountainside and just experienced the majesty of God and then they just sense like they're being confronted with the person of Christ and all that, all that he is. I don't think we could put God in a box on how he reveals himself, but I think the reality is, is that he is revealed. There's a place and there's a moment when he is, where Jesus is revealed. And then next, Jesus is experienced. Jesus is experienced. This is the purpose of his revelation. I don't believe that Jesus decides to reveal himself to us through this newborn child or this miracle that we've seen or this experience or this blessing or this whatever. I don't believe he does that just to just show off every now and then. There's a reason why we come into those moments where Jesus is revealed in our lives and the reason is, is that we might engage him and seek his truth and experience him. Scripture says to taste and see that the Lord is is good, that we might experience him. I believe with all my heart, when we begin to experience him, we will grow in understanding, and I believe we will grow in ways we never thought we could, and I think our mind and our hearts will begin to be transformed in ways that we just blow us out of the water, and I think that that is exactly what is happening here in Paul's um, life. It was funny, I was looking at this. Jesus is revealed, Jesus is experienced. I thought, let's make this real personal. He pursued me. Jesus pursued me and revealed himself to me. Wow. And then now, it's my turn. And, and Jesus has experienced, I pursue him. And when that happens, something else just triggers. When that happens, Jesus is experienced. I think that happens directly, where we are one-on-one, we are digging into God's word, we are trying to worship with everything we've got, we're going into that. I think it's through his people, I think it's through his church. But one thing is when we do experience it, and when we do engage him, I believe we will grow, and I believe uh, we will have that experience, and I believe our perspective um, will change. And So we have the response. How, how do we experience him? Do we pursue him? Do we kind of put him in our pocket for later when we need, when we need him? Um, or do we just... You know, keep them at arm's length and go, man, that's too hard. I don't know that I want to deal. I don't know that I want to deal with that. But in every instance, we see him revealed. We see him experienced, all right? And, and I think it's interesting um, how Saul experienced him, okay? And he grew in him directly as a result of God's spirit, but God's spirit working through other believers in his life. It's interesting to me how dependent Paul was during this season on the other's disciples. And it's what we begin to see here uh, as the example and the precedence of of what it's like to be uh, a sojourner as a believer. Verse 19 says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. 
And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He was responding. He was obviously convinced. Hopefully we would be, wouldn't we? Be like, oh yeah, I'm done forever. But then again, how many of us have had that experience where we've said that anyways, you know? Oh no, this is it. I mean it this time, Jesus. Okay. Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. He was experiencing him. He was growing in him through fellowship, through others. Uh, Something supernatural was beginning uh, to take place. And then the third part, what happens with Jesus, is the place where many of us get stuck and many of us don't know what to do. And it's really the focus of what we're going to talk about today, that Jesus is shared. That Jesus is shared. Instantly, he was sharing through preaching and proclaiming. And, and I'm just like, that's, how about if I just go to church for a while? <laughs> it's a really hard thing for us to think about. The fact that he pursued me, that I pursued him, and now we pursue others. What are we pursuing her from? Because we just want to convert everybody and we want to make them go to our church. No. We want to pursue people so that they can experience a reconciled relationship with God. Do you, you, realize, do you think about that very often? I don't think I think about it enough that I once was lost. I take it for granted because of Christ, he reconciled me to God, the creator of the universe. Reconciled me. That I might stand behind before him and he goes, you're my child. Why do we share that? What Christ asks us to do, that we might share with those we love, that those we know, that those we care about, a lost and dying world, that they can be reconciled with God through Christ. So we hear it, growing up, church, go be a light. Amen, brother. Go be a light to the world. All right, I'm going. Like a city on a hill, you can't cover it up. No. Don't let Satan blow it out. No, don't let it shine. I don't don't really know what that means most of the time, you know? I, I remember going, yeah! You know? So what does it mean? How do we do this? How do we turn outward? What, what, what is, I think verse 22 is very important because we just read it, said that yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and this is something he did. He baffled the Jews. Those who knew him, he baffled them. They didn't know what to do with him. They were just, they were, they were stunned. They were looking at his life, and they were looking, listening to what he was saying, and they were baffled, and he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. And how does this happen? I think in verse 21, you'll see that it wasn't just about his words. It wasn't just persuasive words. In fact, Paul tells us later in the New Testament, quite directly, he says, I don't talk with persuasive words. So I just know Christ and Christ crucified. But verse 21 said, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? They're saying, isn't he the one that's against this? Has anyone ever been against this? This guy is different. Something has changed about this guy. And because of that, they were baffled by his life. 
and they knew there has to be something bigger than just he decided to follow Jesus now. There was something powerful going on in his life. I think he proved it by his life and by his faith. So here's where we're going today. If we believe in the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, if we believe in the great commission to go, how do we do that? How do we posture our lives in such a way that we not only, uh, that we not only experience Jesus as he is revealed, but we share him as well? All right? If we learn anything from Paul, here's what I'd like for us to learn today, and it's your next point in the outline. We cannot share Jesus without reengaging culture. We can't share Jesus to those who need Jesus without re-engaging people who don't know him. And I'm going to explain what I'm talking about here for here in just a moment. Have you seen that movie Hoosiers? It's been out for a long time. Basketball movie, love it. Love Hoosiers. Um, once you've seen it a couple times, it's a really good sleeper. If you put it on, you know, you could fall asleep on the couch on an afternoon. But um, there was a guy... There was a character, they called him Strap. He was the pastor's son. Remember Strap? And uh, Strap was a funny dude because he was, I mean, he was a prayer. He just prayed and prayed. And before the game, when the teams would pray, they would break and all go out for warm-ups. So Strap would stay in the locker room praying. And then I, I, I think like during the beginning of the game, all of a sudden he'd run out. He was done praying and now it's time to sit on the bench. But he never played because he wasn't any good. But there came a time when he, need, they were, he was needed. I think they fouled out. They had a little bit of issues with the team, and they only had six or seven players. So coach said, Strap, you got to go in. And they were at a timeout, and they were at a timeout, and he said, all right, ready, team. And they broke, and Strap was sitting there just praying. And, and, and coach looks at him, and he's like, and he looks at the assistant coach, and he's like, what are you going to do? Coach looks at him, and he says, Strap, God wants you on the floor. And he just goes, and he runs out on the floor, and he scores like 100 points, and they win the game and all that because he was so prophetic. Um, and I think about this engaging culture. Two considerations come by the example of Paul's life. Um, the first one is, is that this works when people see a change in us, which is significant, all right? Which is the scary part because we're, we want that change. Do we have it? But the second thing is it only works if we consider ourselves sent, let me say this to you. Let me pretend that I'm Coach Norman Dale for, for a moment. I believe this with all my heart. God wants you on the floor. He wants you in the game. He wants you beyond these walls to be in the game. He wants you on the floor. And it's scary at times. There's a lot of reasons for that. We're going to talk about a few of them. But let there be no doubt. It only works when we consider ourselves sent. And there are a couple kinds of scents, scent that we have. The first, I'm going to call them scent forward and scent backward, okay? Really, it's semantics. It's not a good description to say scent backward. But we tend to think of scent out as those who are called to proclaim or to preach or to be missionaries or to give their whole life to be a pastor or whatever, that kind of a thing. And so we tend to go, that's your job. Good luck with that, right? That's your job. And, you know, I think it's a lot of us as pastors, that's our fault because we fostered that. All right, in the church today, that's kind of the, the way we act sometimes. Um, but there is definitely those who are called. There are definitely those I think each of us should be prepared at any moment to proclaim. But I think this sent back, this sent back into our neighborhoods, this sent back into our workplaces, this sent back into our families, into our loved ones, that we might live this changed life, that they might really see it, instead of just beating them upside the head with the Bible all the time, that they just look at your life 
and something goes wrong, and they go, you know what? Something's going wrong in my life, and there's something about you that I think I need. Will you share with me what's going on? Somehow, to posture our life so that we can do that, that we are sent back, that we can re-engage culture. Now, both require engaging culture where they are, not expecting culture to come to us. All right, so how do we re-engage it? There, I want to give you four things that it's not about, all right? Four things that it's not about. Four things, I think, that keep us from doing that. Um, and just kind of treats about it. I think the first one is we cannot engage culture without engaging people. That seems like the layup, the easy one, but it's true, all right? Without intentionally engaging, building relationships, without intentionally engaging people. And, and the reason I say this is important is because we have a pattern as Christians of isolating ourselves, we do. Sometimes we get scared and we don't know something's going to be challenged and, we, and we, we get in a protective posture and many times we uh, just tend to um, isolate ourselves. And I think about, honestly, one of the first things as a believer when I was younger I thought I was supposed to do as a Christian was to completely separate myself from the world and have nothing to do with anybody else who was not living the perfect Christian life. And here's the thing. One, it's not biblical. All right? All right, two, none of us are perfect. None of us are living the perfect Christian life. This is going to be a real lonely life. Don't you agree? There is a biblical call to separate ourselves from the values of the world. All right? How we measure success, what we treasure, what we pursue, there should be a difference. Paul himself argued that this is something that's really hard to do. Remember that funny verse of scripture, he says that what I know I should not do, I do, and I can't keep myself from doing what I don't know I should do, and I do it. That's paraphrased. But it's, it reads almost like that. It's crazy. He's just like, this is a constant battle, all right? It's a constant struggle, but don't isolate yourself from the very ones who need this hope that we profess. I have a really good friend. He's a pretty accomplished musician, um, and he, we were talking about, he's also a believer, and we were talking about that he became a Christian when he was in high school. And he said, um, when he became a Christian, he was in this just crazy wheels-off rock and roll band. I mean, it was just wheels-off, okay? Crazy, he said. And so he said when he became a Christian, the first thing he did is he never talked to his bandmates ever again. Left it, started a Christian band. Started wearing T-shirts, Turner Burn, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I, I had that shirt, so it is what it is. Um, and, 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 we, and, I, and I talked to him, not not too long ago, and he shared this story. He said, you know, he said, uh, those three guys, one of them committed suicide. He said, one of them is homeless, and one of them is constantly in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And he said, I don't know that my life would have been, their lives would have been significantly different if I wouldn't have, you know, maybe been light or offered them hope in the world. He says, I, I, there's no way for me to know that. And he says, so I don't, I don't carry an unhealthy health from that. He said, but if there's one thing in my life if I could go back and do it over, he says it would be that. He said, I would have become a believer, allow God to change my heart, and think about ways to love these guys and to pour into them and allow the Spirit to work through me and pray that the Spirit protects me and, and use the, the fruit of the Spirit in, in, in spiritual warfare to gird myself up in my own life so that I'm not taken down, but I'm actually able to be a light into them. He says, I just wish uh, I would have done that. We cannot engage culture without engaging people. Verse 26 tells us in a moment, reminds us that Paul went back to Jerusalem, the very place he gained permission to bring the prisoners to persecute them. 
That's where he went to live out his life. Because there he knew, people knew the old Saul. And if they saw the new Saul, he would speak with authority because his life was changed. We can't engage culture without engaging people. I was a big reader in college, uh, and I read the, uh, the popular series Cliff's Notes. Have you heard those? Let me give you the Cliff's Note version of for the first step to engaging people. <laughs> Be normal. Normal for you, being true to who you are in Christ, be normal. As you're growing, as you're sincere to him, as you're passionate about growing in his word, as you're being humbled by our inability to conquer sin, as you're dependent upon him, be that. Be authentic. Don't act like you've arrived when you haven't. Be who you are and where God is leading you. I want to give you permission to break the Christian stereotype. All right? That we would use the Bible and that we would filter what is biblical truth and begin to think for ourselves, use our brain, and learn and apply it and pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us in serving and ministering and making a difference in the life of others. Number two, we cannot engage culture without engaging fear without engaging the fears of culture. And this is very relevant to the first point. Talk about fear. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Is there any doubt what's going on here? They were so afraid of him now. They knew of his influence. They knew of his power, what he was capable of doing, and they had to get rid of him. Verse 25, but his followers took him by night. I love that he already had followers. He took him by night and lowered him to a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he went back. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Paul was stuck in the middle of a fear sandwich, you know? He had no place to go. Two perspectives on fear. One, ours. Two, theirs. I know, I know. We're more afraid. We're scared to death. We're going to say the wrong thing. We're going we're to blow it. We're going to do whatever. You know, very few of us experience true uh, persecution <laughs> like this. But my biggest fear as a young Christian was being thought of as a naive idiot or a nerd. It is what it is. That's what I was afraid of. Maybe none of you can relate with that. Um, I just, it's very selfish, but it's very true. I was scared people would think I was, I was not cool because I, I was all concerned about me. And as I got older, my fears kind of grew. My, my fears are that people would consider me irrelevant, or that they would consider me ignorant, that they would consider me judgmental because they knew I was a Christian or worse, a pastor that they would consider me a hypocrite because no one's perfect. So I asked the question, how do we break those stereotypes? And I thought about that, and I thought, oh, the answer is easy. Don't be those things. <laughs> Just don't be those things. And then there's that fear of, of being unwanted or unwelcome in this group. And here's what I was thinking. If we're not those things, if we're not hypocritical or judgmental, or, and we, we seek to, to minimize our ignorance... <laughs> then I think you won't be those last two, unwanted 
are unwelcome. I believe that most people who are far from Christ want people who are close to Christ in their life. They don't want the baggage that comes with us, but I think they want it and they need it. And there are opportunities there. All right. Our fears, then their fears. What are their fears? What, what are their fears? People that you know, or maybe if you're a new follower, or maybe if you're not. Maybe you know people. What are their fears when they're around believers? What, what's their biggest fears? Say, just say them out. Anybody? That they'll be judged? What else? Okay, that you're trying to change them. That's scary because we don't even know what we're being changed for, right? Can we really trust it's going to be better? It doesn't seem better. What else? Huh. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people who have, I can't come to that Bible study. You might ask me to tell you where the book of John is. What else? Hmm. Okay. What about fear of just us? Not, not maybe of God or whatever. One for me, I think, I think people are afraid I'm going to invite them to church. <laughs> Ever feel that? Oh, I can't invite them to church. That is a really telling fear right there. Why? Either we're doing something wrong or something. All right. I guess beyond anything, I think we need to hear... Um, I think scripture tells us over and over that the kingdom of God is about this process of, of posturing our life and, and tilling the soil and preparing the soil and doing all that we can but understanding that ultimately it's God's movement um, that changes people's hearts and minds and transforms them. You and I cannot change other people. We have a hard enough time changing ourselves, right? Truth is we can't change ourselves. We need the spirit to change ourselves. And so why do we then still allow the fear of not being able to succeed at changing someone, keep us from engaging them as a believer and be befriending them and loving them. And we cannot engage culture without engaging fear. We cannot engage culture without engaging need, the needs of culture. One, this is something we talk about all the time here, so I won't spend much time on it. One, it's just a biblical command. Two, I've heard this statement before, and I believe it's true. It's kind of cliche, but no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. I believe that. I mean, God moves, and there's opportunities. We better be ready to minister to someone or serve someone, but I'm telling you, they want to know that you really care. No one wants to be a project. And so either you've got to be a liar and not really care and be a real faker or somehow figure out, to release yourself and experience God and let the Spirit transform you so you really start caring. Verse 27, I love this, this dependency and this concern for one another. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. This was Barnabas taking him by the hand and leading him. So Saul stayed with him and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, and they tried to kill him. But when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I think there's two forms of engaging me. And I think it's okay. We need to remember that we have to be engaging the needs of one another. As a body of Christ, we have to be concerned about one another. 
You know, um, we've never talked about tithing at our church. We're going to in our membership class. We're going to come have pretty soon. But we've never really talked about it. It's a great time for us to just say this. You know, early tithing happened. They brought the money together so that you could take care of those who are without in the church or in the, in the community, all right? Our hope is, is that we would be concerned about taking care of and engaging the needs of one another. Those who are in our church, those who are out of our church, in our city, those that we know who will never come in the doors of this church, are we willing to give away? Engaging the needs of each other, one in the church and also outside. There's 3,000 some odd verses on engaging the needs of culture. Last thing, four, we cannot engage culture without engaging misconceptions. And there are many kinds and many forms. I've got a story to tell with that, but we're out of time, so I'm not going to. But I will tell you this. Um, there are many ways to engage misconceptions. The best ways to deal with them, straight on. And if the misconception is that every Christian is judgmental, don't be judgmental. If the misconception is that you're, we're hypocrites, and if at least we, you know what makes us hypocrites? Is when we pretend we don't struggle. It's not when we mess up. Because if we would just say, yeah, I messed up. They wouldn't go, hypocrite! They would go, oh, me too. What do you do? Oh, I just ask God to forgive me. Really? He'll do that? Well, me, not you. No. <laughs> Engaging misconceptions. How do we do that? Real quickly, how do we do that? Um, I think the first one is, is that, first of all, the misconceptions about Christianity and the church have got to start bothering us. It's got to get under your skin. When the people who Christ died for look at the church, the mechanism that Christ said, I want to share my love with the world, and they go, ooh, that should bug us. It should drive us crazy. We should want to go, no, no, that's not us. But instead, we just go, you're judging us now, whatever. I think it's got to bug us. It's got to bother us enough to want to be a part of the solution. Two, I think we've got to let go of some of our own desire for how church has to look like for ourselves and do what it takes together, okay, to be the church in the world. Three, we've got to know what the Bible really says. Because if we don't, someone questions it or something happens and it begins to, it'll fall in on itself because we don't know. Let me tell you something. The Bible is tested and true. It's tested for years. It's tested. This is what we're going to talk about next, next week. You can be sure. When it seems like it contradicts itself, it's because we don't know what it's saying. There are many people smarter than us who have tried and tried and tried to disprove Scripture who have failed over and over and over and over. Do you know that in Scripture there's never been anything proven not true? It's only been proven possible or true, but not true. Never. We'll talk about that next week. We don't have time, right? Yes. We've got to get rolling. All right, I think the last thing is we've just got to pray that God changes our own hearts. All right? I don't know. Do you pray that God changes your heart and your mind? We pray that? God, you got to do this because I keep trying. I can't. You keep doing this. All this tension, all this fear, and all this self-sacrifice. What's the result? Verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray.